I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hello and welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Alan Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberland. And I am your host, Mary Wilkerson. We are excited to release new episodes once a month, so please make sure to subscribe and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Archbishop, welcome and thanks again for joining us. It's great to be with you, Mike. Mary, thank you. Of course. Archbishop, how was your last month? How have things been for you personally? Well, uh, very good, thanks. And uh, like everybody else, there's a a natural grace in having an increase of daylight and warmth every day. Mm -hmm. And the crocuses along the side of my house are coming up, so they're quite brave, I think. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's kind of early. Michigan weather uh, faking them out is what's happening. Michigan's about to get us with (laughs) with snow in another week or two. Well, crocuses are strong. Oh, good, good. Yeah, just like awesome. they're like all Michiganians. Nice, very good. <laughs> I had uh, I saw on social media that you recently ordained a new bishop for the diocese of Gaylord. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, his name is uh, Bishop Jeffrey Walsh. He comes to us uh, to Michigan from the diocese of Scranton, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, very uh, uh, rich experience as a parish priest, a vicar for clergy been engaged in priestly formation. And uh, sort of a a significant note is he has a great devotion to the cause of uh, Father Walter uh, Chisick, who was a Jesuit priest who spent uh, over 20 years in uh, Soviet prisons and in Siberia. Uh, He Mm -hmm. functioned behind the Iron Curtain, uh, not for very long before he was discovered. And so he wound up uh, really serving the people of God by his, uh, his crosses. And uh, Father uh, Bishop Walsh has a great devotion to him, which I think is a sign of his own uh, profound insight into priestly ministry. Yeah, that's mm. beautiful. And what a... Um... Yeah, that's an amazing story, that book uh, by Walter Chizik, um, With God in Russia. Amazing, amazing book. Amazing story. That's awesome. That's very good. We see also that um, on Ash Wednesday, you celebrated Mass at St. Aloysius in Detroit. Is that something that you do every Ash Wednesday to celebrate it there? What's the history behind that? Well, I think the uh, Archbishops of Detroit have been doing it for a very long time, and when I came, I continued it. I think the story behind it is uh, St. Aloysius is everybody's church downtown, uh, when there was a Hudson's, it was a way for shoppers to take a break and go to midday mass or <laughs> yes, confession yeah. at Hudson's. But yeah. uh, it continu- St. Al's continues to be a church for uh, people downtown, workers, shoppers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like a good place f- for me to uh, celebrate Ash Wednesday. That's great. That's great. Archbishop, can you give us a little overview or history behind uh, the use of ashes? You know, why, why is it that we use ashes on Ash Wednesday and, and especially those key lines? You know, either it sounds, I remember it seems like you go forward and you either are, are told, you remember you are dust and to dust you shall return, or you're told repent and believe in the gospel. Um, can you speak a little bit about that and the inspiration for use of ashes? Well, it's a, a practice that we've inherited from the Old Testament, the uh, the, uh, the symbol of ashes as a sign of, of uh, repentance and mourning, sadness. Uh, people perhaps remember the story of Job sitting on an ash heap. Wow. Uh, ashes are a reminder of our mortality, of the passing uh, of the things of this world. 
And so I think uh, there's an, that's the, uh, uh, the insight behind the church's use of ashes on Ash Wednesday to remind us of our mortality. Uh, there are the, uh, since the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, uh, the imposition can be accompanied by one of the, either of those sayings that you quoted, Mike. Uh, the first is the more uh, traditional one. It echoes uh, something from the third uh, chapter of Genesis about uh, we are uh, dust and to dust we will return. It's a reminder that the things of this world pass and we need to live for the next, even in this world. And repent and believe in the gospel. The good news is uh, taken obviously right from the sacred scripture and it's another way to remember what Lent is about. Lent is about the repentance that's necessary for us to re, uh, believe anew in the mm. death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Yeah, I saw also that you were joined by members of the Immaculate Conception Ukrainian Catholic Church Choir from Hamtramck to provide music during the Mass. I thought that was a really um, beautiful piece of the liturgy. What was that experience like? Well, it was a remarkable experience of communion with uh, Ukrainian Americans who have uh, their own profound ties to Ukraine. And uh, the Holy Father had asked uh, Catholics throughout the world to observe uh, the fasting and abstinence of Ash Wednesday, particularly as a prayer for Ukraine, and to actually take up a, a collection on that day for the, uh, uh, to provide aid to the people mm -hmm. who were suffering. And so to have the, uh, these Ukrainian Catholics uh, present at the Mass made it all the more poignant for us, I think. Yeah, it's um, that day of uh, the the Holy Father asking that Ash Wednesday we kind of combine our sacrifices, um, offering them up for the struggle going on in Ukraine. I found that it was a pretty powerful way to respond to a situation that I feel a little helpless in, right? Like as we're watching the news and hearing different things and maybe even feeling a little bit of fear, we as Catholic Christians do have this incredible um, invitation to join in solidarity with those in, with the church in Ukraine and in the global situation, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, when, when I'm weak, St. Paul says, uh, when I'm powerless, uh, then mm -hmm. I'm strong. Mm -hmm. uh, the power of Christ is at work in me. And that's, uh, that's part of the good news. Uh, what the world thinks is a dead end of impotence uh, can be turned into, into fruit. Because mm. when the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it uh, it bears much fruit if we die with Christ. Right. Yeah. Do you have any um, other thoughts as we, as all of us, obviously, not just Catholic Christians, everybody's kind of watching that situation in Ukraine. And um, I, I keep pleading for, you know, conversion of heart and God's grace just to pour upon that region. Any other insights that you can offer um, for us so far away from a situation that seems so intense and such a heavy cross. One way that uh, I try to continue in my prayer and, and be engaged and not simply give up in, in frustration is to keep my prayer united to that of Our Lady, especially mm. Our Lady of Sorrows, mm. uh, who, uh, who clearly and powerfully intercedes for her children before the throne of the Father. And so by uniting my prayers, our prayers with hers, I believe they have all the more uh, efficacy before the throne of mercy. Yes. 
one thing that we've done just in our, our family, we had done a Eyes on Jesus podcast on the rosary and the place that the rosary has. And we've kind of dedicated that on Sunday nights. Our rosary is going to be for the conversion of hearts for all those affected. So I, I do, I in praying even with my young children with that particular intention through Our Lady, um, it feels like we're able to somehow unite in a situation that seems, um, like I said, beyond our ability to kind of do anything about, you know, to know that we're doing something with the spirit. Right, uh, because by natural uh, human terms, it is beyond our ability to mm-hmm. uh, to uh, have an, an effect on the, this tragic situation. Right. That's great. Thank you so much for those those thoughts. Today, we are lucky to be talking about the Sacrament of Reconciliation, which is also known as Confession. Um, to begin this conversation, for any non-Catholic listeners or listeners that might be new to the faith, would you mind kind of giving an overview of what reconciliation is? And even a different, is there is there a difference between the words reconciliation and confession? Are they interchangeable? If you could just give us a little insight into this sacrament. Well, the most important thing to note is that we are talking about a sacrament, uh, something outward, a ritual, a uh, set of gestures and and words uh, given to us by Christ in order to accomplish the very thing they symbolize. Mm -hmm. And this is a a sacrament specifically aimed uh, at uh, uh, absolving from sin and strengthening uh, one's uh, capacity to to repent and move forward. Uh, So that, that really is the most important point. And we believe it's uh, clearly witnessed in sacred scripture when our Lord uh, breathes the Holy Spirit upon the apostles on uh, Easter night and says, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. Mm -hmm. And whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Because only God can forgive sins. The priest doesn't forgive sins in his own name Mm -hmm. in in the sacrament. Uh, It's uh, Christ who's acting through his ministry. And really then our Lord is continuing what he did when, uh, before his ascension. Uh, we are not any poorer than the disciples who knew him when he walked on this earth. We have this same gift of hearing Jesus say to us sinners, go in peace, your mm-hmm. sins are forgiven. Now about the name, there are actually a number of titles that we can use for the, the sacrament. Mm-hmm. Reconciliation, because that's what's accomplished. Um, the uh, confession, because confessing our sins is an essential element of this uh, experience, could also be called penance, because repentance is essential for uh, this uh, encounter with Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, The sacrament of forgiveness, all of these names would be appropriate. You know, Archbishop, I love what you said there about the how the priest, uh, it's really God who who forgives the sins through the priest and is working in and through the priest and uh, I just love that because it's so essential for us to again connect with God and to I, I think God knew we are you know physical human persons we needed to hear in our ears that word you are forgiven you know and it's such an essential piece but uh, can you share share with us a little bit about what, what happens when somebody goes to reconciliation or, or confession um, can you give us a brief overview of the kind of the flow I know so many people maybe they stayed away from the sacrament because, you know, it's been a while and maybe they're nervous or they forget exactly how it works and so there's an awkwardness there. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about what happens when somebody goes? Well, uh, 
really the sacrament begins when uh, the person, when, when the, uh, uh, a disciple feels uh, called to it to, to put one's sins in the presence of Christ and to be healed. Then what's important is to make an examination of conscience. Uh, uh, look back, remember when was the last time I was at the sacrament? When did I last celebrate it? And since then, uh, have I committed any grievous sin? Have I violated any uh, grave obligation that falls to me as a disciple? And if so, how often? What did I do? But also then to remember venial sins, the, those that are not grave, uh, to what, what does the Holy Spirit want me to put this is a good way to make an examination of conscience, to uh, think to my, to call upon the Holy Spirit and say, show me, Lord Spirit, Lord God, Holy Spirit, what is it you want me to bring to Jesus so that he can heal me and touch me and, and make me whole? So examination of conscience. Then uh, privately, personally, to express one's sorrow for sin, make an act of contrition before going to the priest then to con confess one's sins to the priest. Tell, tell Father, uh, when was the last time you were in confession? And uh, give him just a brief uh, statement about your uh, condition in life. Uh, I'm a middle-aged man and married with children, something like that. So the priest has a sense of, of uh, where you are situated in your pilgrimage of life. And then confess. Uh, any grievous sins have to be confessed, presented to the Lord, and then also venial sins that uh, have been brought to mind. Usually then the priest will make uh, a brief comment to offer some advice about uh, how to proceed in one's uh, uh, resolution to advance in holiness. Once in a while the priest will ask a penitent if... Uh, uh, he, he might ask a question in order to better understand the, what the penitent is confessing. But then he'll impose a penance, uh, give uh, some act of uh, prayer or good work uh, that can help atone for one's sins, put one on the right track, mm -hmm. ask for an articulation of one's sins, say out loud, uh, tell Jesus you're sorry for your sins, either in a prayer you know by heart or in your own words, and then the priest will pronounce the absolution in the name of Jesus. And then after that, the, uh, uh, the, the penitent, uh, the, the Christian who has made the confession, will, should perform the penance imposed. I've never heard before to uh, begin the Sacrament of Reconciliation with just a statement about your life and where you're at in your life. But that makes sense, right? To be able mm. to help the priest be able to guide um, maybe even the the forward penance and things like that. I've It's just never been, nobody's ever said that to me. So Well, so. it doesn't have to happen, sure. but I think it's, a, I, I do it when yeah. I go to confession if the priest doesn't know me. Yeah. I mean, I think <clears throat> it makes a difference uh, if the priest thinks I'm uh, a married man Right, or, right, right. Yeah, knows I'm a bishop. Actually, sure, yeah. pretty soon after he hears what I've got to confess, he can figure out that I'm not a married man. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, it, it's a help. It's a help. Yeah. 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 I always um. It's it, there. There's maybe it's just me, but I I feel a pressure to have a good 
reconciliation. Like when I go to, to reconciliation, I want to be able to be as honest as possible with, with Jesus through the sacrament um, so that I can open my heart to really receive the graces that he has for me. So I wonder if when you're preparing, you even said something else nobody's ever said to me, which is maybe praying the act of contrition prior to going to the sacrament. I always pray it after. But um, is there any examination of conscience you like using? Is there anything you try to keep in mind or that you think would be helpful, even if you don't personally use it for for the faithful as they prepare to have a good reconciliation? Well, uh, the the classic way is to go through uh, the Ten Commandments one by one and the mm-hmm. Beatitudes. Uh, mm-hmm. How do I measure up against these things? Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think it's very helpful to look at one's own state in life and think about uh, my own uh, responsibilities uh, for the vocation that uh, God has given me and, and to uh, look, look through those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, honor thy father and thy mother. That's in the broadest sense about authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I use authority? How do I live with authority? But mm-hmm. also then uh, the Beatitudes, you know, uh, have I forgiven my enemies? Uh, uh, do I try to live a life of, of poverty in spirit? The Beatitudes are very, very important as well but really to measure myself against Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we all come up short. I heard right. you laugh. <laughs> a little bit. That's, that's one of the challenges. You know, the USCCB, um, the United States bishops on their website, one thing that I really appreciate is they have examination of consciences that are geared towards specific people. So if you're um, you know, a young adult, if you're a teenager, if you're a married mother, um, because it does um, personalize the walk to holiness. And it helps me, at least when I'm doing uh, that type of examination of conscience, to look at my state of life. So that's an important piece, I think. You know, sometimes you hear um, to make sure to confess in kind and in number. How specific are we supposed to get? Like, what is it supposed to look like ideally? Well, uh, in kind, it's not sufficient to say, I did bad things. Right. Uh, You know, what, what is the nature uh, mm-hmm. of uh, uh, what I did that's not uh, the action of Christ it, mm-hmm. it, for a disciple of Christ, and how often have I done it? Mm-hmm. And uh, if these are grievous uh, sins, mortal sins, mm-hmm. it's, uh, one makes a very significant effort to, to think, to uh, re- try to remember that. Mm-hmm. But not to be scrupulous about it either. Make an honest uh effort to remember and then uh, put your memory, put what you remember in front of the priest as well as you can. Mm -hmm. But also to do something, to do that as well with the venial sins. But you don't, uh, no one is expected to uh, confess all of one's venial sins. You know, Archbishop, uh, you've mentioned it a few times now, kind of, you've mentioned the, the grave or mortal sin, and then you've mentioned, obviously, venial sin. You know, just for the sake of our listeners, and especially some, you know, maybe non-Catholics are listening, or maybe it's been a while, can you kind of briefly describe the difference between mortal sin and venial sin, and, you know, obviously, uh, how, how it's important to confess both, and but most especially, of course, the, the mortal sins. Would you mind describing that a little bit? Well, mortal sin is any action or omission by which a disciple has, in fact, uh, repudiated uh, service to God, rebelled against God. 
And in effect, what that means is violating uh, a, a serious obligation that comes with uh, uh, belonging to God as his son or daughter. So uh, I'll just talk about some obvious things. Uh, murder is a, is a mortal sin. Right. Uh, adultery, fornication, uh, intentionally missing mass on Sunday is a grave matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a mortal sin, for, uh, for an act to be uh, mortally sinful, you have to have three conditions. It has to be seri- gravely wrong or considered gravely wrong. You have to have deliberation about it. You have to think about it. You have to decide that you're going to do it. And then you have to give your fu- full consent of the will. Anything other than that, any of, if those conditions aren't met, uh, a wrongful act is a venial sin. That's a good distinction. You know, I, uh, you know, we get these outlines to talk about the sacrament of confession. The next question I laughed at because it says, uh, what if we forget to confess something? And this has actually happened to me before where I went back into the sacrament of reconciliation. I was like, you know, it's been three minutes since my last uh, confession. And the priest was like, this is not necessary. So can you tell us a little bit if, you know, if we leave reconciliation and really we just forgot to mention something, what happens then? Yeah, Yeah, genuinely. Well, if it's a grave sin, if it's a mortal sin, it has to be mentioned at the next time uh, you go to confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have, you have to say to the confessor, Father, uh, without any uh, intention on my part, I forgot to mention this grave sin. Uh, I know it was forgiven, but uh, I, I need to tell you so you can give me an appropriate penance. Mm-hmm. For venial sin, it doesn't have to be mentioned again. You know, Archbishop, obviously Catholics, we, we uh, I think a stumbling block for so many people is the idea that we're going to, what some people see is like, oh, I'm going to go to a, the priest or another human being to confess these sins. You know, why not just do it privately in prayer? Um, and I know that's a stumbling block for so many people, why they maybe feel uncomfortable about the sacrament of reconciliation. Can you share a little bit about what, you know, the biblical basis, you know, why do we as Catholics have a different perspective on this than maybe some of our, our Protestant or evangelical brethren uh, when it comes to the the normative nature of confessing our sins to a priest who, as you said earlier, is acting on behalf of God? Well, uh, the first uh, evidence we have for why this is right is because it's the way our Lord established it for us. He gave us this sacrament, so he obviously intends for us to use it. And then we can ask ourselves, well, why, why would it make sense for him to do this? I mean, he doesn't act uh, irrationally. And this is part of the very, I like to use the word ecology of God's action. God uses the things of this world to accomplish the works of heaven. And the ultimate manifestation of that is Jesus himself. Uh, The Father has saved us not in some abstracted way, but by his Son taking on flesh and making himself... uh, sensibly present in the world. And then the church continues this visible presence of God acting in his son Jesus, and especially in the sacraments. So uh, by acting this way, our Lord confirms what we have as an insight. Uh, We need this uh, as human beings, as creatures of this earth. Uh, We need the visible experiences of God's grace it, it, and to be present to us. And so, uh, yes, it can be embarrassing, 
but there's a grace in going through the embarrassment. And one of the great, well, one great grace is then hearing somebody say out loud, your sins are forgiven. Mm. It's out there. It's objective. I can hold on to that and cling to it. And because of my faith in Christ and the church, I know that's Jesus speaking to me. Also, uh, there's a great grace in saying out loud, this is what I am. Mm. You know, we all think, for example, something like gossip. We all have a contempt for uh, gossip. But it, it, it's not easy to say out loud, I'm a gossip. I do this. <laughs> yeah. But by saying it, I'm actually more free. Mm. Uh, and it's an opportunity to confess that God is good. I am this. Uh, I'm a thief and God loves me, mm-hmm. even though I am a thief. Mm-hmm. Or I'm, uh, I'm unchaste and God loves me. That's a great, that's a great gift. Mm-hmm. And another important point about the sacrament is that it reminds us that uh, as personal and intimate as uh, a disciple's relationship with Jesus is, it's never private, but that uh, I belong to the family of faith. Hmm. And what I do to sin not only wounds my own soul, it wounds the whole body of Christ. You know, Saint, uh, our Lord said to St. Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, why do you persecute me? Hmm. Paul's sin was very personal to Jesus, but not private. It was uh, an offense against the whole mystical body. And we oughtn't, that's important for us to remember. Mm. Those are such uh, good distinctions. I know the um, older I get, the more convicted I become of just the the goodness of God knowing his creatures, <laughs> you know, knowing that we would need to say these things out loud, knowing we would need, even from a healing um, perspective, to hear that our sins are forgiven. there it, it goes so naturally with even psychology and who we are as people. It's, it's such a helpful sacrament. And, and it, it's a way for me in the church to confess not only my sin, but I confess how good God is. Mm. I'm a sinner and God loves me. That's a beautiful thing to confess publicly by going to confession. Right. Mm. And I think we're in a and a point in culture where people just need that message (laughs) in this sacrament is just helps us walk with that. So, you know, we hear, and it's funny, we work, Mike and I work with um, middle school students and we do confirmation retreats and we always do a little talk about the sacrament of reconciliation and the importance of it. And um, kids are always so curious about this seal of confession. What does that mean? Can a priest take what I've said and tell somebody and they'll come up with all these wild scenarios for us. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the seal of confession, how far it extends, who it applies to. Does it apply to me as well as you? Um, what is the seal of confession? If you want to tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's the obligation uh, to hold uh, as a confidence in secret everything that is said in the context of the, of the, of the confession. Now, uh, over time, uh, the moral theologians have worked through a lot of scenarios to talk about what that <laughs> boundary is. But right. the two basic points are that the priest cannot tell anyone uh, uh, 
about what he's heard in confession, identifying somebody, you know, this is what Mrs. Jones, Mr. Smith said to me, mm -hmm. and he can't act on such knowledge either. If it would uh, embarrass the penitent, or uh, especially if it would lead to somebody figuring out to, uh, that the penitent had said such and such a thing in, the, in confession. So the point is really to preserve the freedom of the penitent, to, to remove every doubt about the confidentiality of what's presented in confession. Hmm. Now, it doesn't uh, extend, it extends to everybody who might overhear the confession, hmm. but it doesn't extend to the penitent, though I think it's most wise uh, for uh, someone who's uh, uh, for the penitent uh, to be careful about what uh, what he shares or she shares from the confession. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, knowing obviously that you can't reveal specifics uh, or reveal anything that's said to you, obviously, in the confessional. You know, is it possible for you as a, as a priest or archbishop <clears throat> to kind of share generally, obviously, w what does it feel like to be a priest, you know, hearing these confessions? You know, do you have any... Um, I don't know, just any words of like that you'd like to share with people that are maybe on the fence or thinking about going to confession, maybe it's been a long time. Um, what, what is it like from your perspective, hearing the confessions? Well, I can, I can offer uh, my own uh, testimony to it without uh, infringing the seal. And, and one doesn't, a, a priest needs to be very, very careful. Even uh, sometimes you could talk about hearing confessions and not violate the seal, but it can make people somewhat uncomfortable. You, we mm -hmm. have to do everything we can not to cause anybody to doubt right. the inviolability of the seal. But I certainly can reflect on my own experience. And I will say that it is one of the most powerful experiences of what it means to be a priest. Uh, I mean, w being a priest, especially a parish priest, means a, a lot of different kind of duties. Uh, some of them, you know, they can feel a little trivial. I suppose uh, can feel a little trivial to uh, be married and have to clean out the garage sometimes. <laughs> yes. uh, sure can. Not the highest manifestation <laughs> of your responsibility. My husband will appreciate that because he just cleaned our garage. So. <laughs> but there are there are men of, uh, experiences of fulfilling one's duty, one's mm. state in life that really get to the core mm. uh, of uh, what it means. And for the, I would say, hearing confessions, celebrating the sacrament of penance, reconciliation is that for a priest. Uh, to be an instrument uh, by which people are healed of their sin and brought closer to the Lord is uh, a great, great blessing. It's scary. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an awesome responsibility, and and I only can do it because I trust that the Lord will make good on my humble efforts. Hmm. You had said on uh, at Ash Wednesday Mass this year, you talked about, and it's so, it's just a really profound statement that. It's a gift to just desire holiness. And right. uh, you, you, you asked us as the faithful not to take that for granted. Um, what do you think maybe that, that desire to be holy, I want to be better, I want to be holy, how might that relate to the sacrament of reconciliation and maybe even the push to go if we're afraid? <laughs> well, uh, the appetite to be holy is, is 
I mean, that, that's a little abstract. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. a, even a better way to say is it's an appetite to know Jesus better and to be open mm. to his love. Uh, and how can it, so what's in the way of uh, my uh, covenant with Jesus? Uh, that that's a good way to think about the sacrament of penance. Where do I need to apologize to Christ uh, for what's amiss in our relationship so that he can heal it? And to let him, in, uh, in the power of his Holy Spirit, point out to me what he would like me to uh, r- remove. Mm. Uh, he, let, be, let him heal so that we can be more intimate friends. You know, there's that uh, uh, passage from the book of Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's always standing at our door and knocking. And confession, penance, sacrament of reconciliation is a way to get uh, our hand on the knob in order to open the door all the wider. Mm, Yeah. Beautiful. That is, that is a, you're right, Mary, it is very profound. Like just, just simply desiring it is a right. grace in and of itself, of course, you know, that's great. So, and we couldn't desire it without the movement of the Holy Spirit. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Jesus says to, to Peter, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, mm-hmm. uh, no one can come to me unless the father draw him. Right. And again, just reveals how, how good God is and how, um, really can't accomplish anything without him, you know, um, even desiring him can't be accomplished without his grace and help. You know what I mean? So, yeah. You know, Archbishop, I know you used to serve as rector of the Sacred Heart Major Seminary. And so just a curiosity question here, but you know, how, how, how is it the seminarians, you know, how does one become a confessor? How, how are they prepared? How are priests prepared to hear confessions and, and to walk people through this beautiful healing process? Well, the most uh, well, uh, the the more remote preparation is to uh, become uh, learn to get to be learned to the appropriate degree in the church's moral tradition and the church tradition of the spiritual life. Uh, what's uh, what constitutes vice? What constitutes virtue in the, the following of Jesus? So, moral theology is obviously very important. Another important theological element is uh, to learn the nature of the sacrament, also to learn the canon law uh, by which the church governs the sacrament. And then uh, more immediately, they practice. Uh, They're given uh, uh, pointers uh, from uh, the tradition of uh, moral theology, sacramental theology, about what to look for, what to do, how to hear confession, and then they practice. Uh, They're given scenarios uh, 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 to, uh, in front of the class, they they do some practices of uh, hearing uh, uh, a confession. Sometimes that's ordinary. Sometimes they're given one, they're surprised with a challenge uh, uh, and to see how they react. And then the priest who's leading the course along with the the students uh, offer advice about uh, what went right and what might have gone better. Hmm. Yeah, don't they have um, 
kind of like volunteers come in almost as actors or actresses, if you will. They do. Like, I think they and, do get oh, how uh, funny. Yeah. outside people to come in and uh, play the role. <laughs> yeah. And they're kind of given like smart. a slip. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. They're given like a slip of paper with like what to confess, obviously, because it's, it's mock, it's fake. So it's not a real confession, of course. But Right. No, we yeah. wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I certainly would not want to do that. Uh, <laughs> I'm assuming most of us probably, I mean, the three of us probably received... Um, uh, the sacrament of reconciliation first as children, because we talk about receiving it, uh, I guess, most ordinarily, it's before the sacrament of Holy Eucharist. And we talk about the age of reason is when most people, if they're, you know, cradle Catholics, born Catholic, uh, baptized Catholic as babies, they would receive the sacrament somewhere before their first communion. How would we describe the age of reason? When you can be held responsible for knowing right from wrong. That's mm. what it, when are you responsible uh, and uh, typically what the authors say is about seven or eight. I don't know mm-hmm. if that coincides with, Mary, what you find as a, a, a parent. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe uh, a little earlier, but that's good. <laughs> you know, when, when, when is your boy uh, responsible for breaking that lamp? Right. He it is to... funny, though. There is like a moment in parenting when you can tell your children have crossed over from innocently, right, participating in all the temptations that we have to um, a more intentional uh, act that wouldn't be something we should be doing. There is, you can tell in hmm. in little children, at least I can with my own children, right, that right about five or six, you start to watch the wheels turning differently when choosing to do wrong. Hmm. And so I think uh, seven is, is generally agreed upon by the the theologians in the church is uh, around the the use of of reason. Yeah. It's kind of a question for all of us, but I guess first for you, Archbishop, uh, do you recall, do you remember your first reconciliation? Uh, Vaguely, I do. Uh, I I remember that uh, uh, we went, if I recall correctly, it was Friday or Saturday before the Sunday Mass, Mm. and uh, Sister who was our catechist, uh, really urged us to even avoid venial sin uh, so that we could make uh, Holy Communion, uh, that first Holy Communion, uh, as united to Christ as possible. Hmm. That's what I remember. Hmm. Do you remember yours, Mike, your first reconciliation? I I can't remember the exact... I mean, I remember preparing for it. Oddly enough, I don't know if this is just because I'm an 80s kid, uh, but... Um, I remember receiving First Communion in second grade, but I didn't receive First Reconciliation until fourth grade, and it seemed like huh. that was just the norm for the it religious was, education. Like, yeah. yeah, we were we were on a path that, that then we've had to turn back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Was that across? <laughs> was that across the um, you know the United States? People had moved reconciliation th- at some piece. I think uh, in most places it uh, did. Uh, uh, we were experimenting that way. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So I do recall preparing to go, um, but I don't remember, I can't remember the exact first reconciliation, no. Mm. But I do, I mean, I've gone obviously many a time since then, and it's been very powerful. <laughs> How about you, Mary? Yeah, it's an interesting question, because I actually don't have any memories of my first reconciliation, but partially maybe because my parents growing up, reconciliation was actually a part of our faith life. So maybe once every two months we would go from the time we received our first reconciliation, right? Mm. So perhaps that wasn't such a... um profound memory because it became just a norm of growing up. Um, 
so yeah, I, I can't really remember my first reconciliation, but like you said, Mike, there's been plenty of times. One of my favorite stories to tell people, Archbishop, is when we were in college, Mike and I were in college together and we hung out with the same group of friends and we all we all went to reconciliation together. And I remember standing in line, we were doing the examination of conscience out loud. And perhaps this would not be recommended to anybody except a very close group of friends. But as we were reading it, we're like, oh, yeah, Mike, that one's you. Make sure to confess it. Make sure to confess it. So we kind of all did it communally and owned our sin in front of each other before going into the sacrament of reconciliation. Do you remember that, Mike, that time? Or, or more, not so much owned it, but had it pointed out to us by yes. our friends. Yeah, that's what... <laughs> Our walk in holiness together. Uh, yeah, the joke is, of course, like if you're not sure what to confess, go ask your spouse, right? You know, that would help out at knowing. <laughs> They'll help you out. They'll yeah. You out. Mm. Was there any time, Archbishop Ignoron, that you've had like a profound experience of reconciliation through the sacrament? It's just every time I go, I feel strengthened in my resolve to start again. Yes. Uh, that's the for me so very important about it. Yeah. You know, there's a, I, I don't know where it appears in her writings, but uh, the little flower uh, talks about the experience of being like a child trying to climb up the stairs, a toddler, and getting a little bit and then falling back, moving a little bit and falling back. And eventually, uh, God the Father uh, notices this persistent effort and just picked her up and put her up at the top of the stairs. <laughs> oh. And I think uh, that's that's very much the way it is for for many of us. Mm. That's actually a really beautiful um, little story to illustrate that. And I guess maybe to round to, to end this conversation today, I was wondering if you have any words for um, you know we're at the time of Lent where people are preparing to come into the church, and people might be. Um, either receiving their first reconciliation or considering going to reconciliation when it's been a long time. Do you have like one piece of advice maybe to encourage us to face a sacrament, which is sometimes hard for people to go to? To remember that not only do disciples confess their sins in reconciliation, but they confess how good and merciful God is and what a joy it brings to the heart of Jesus to have purchased that uh, mercy for us on the cross. Mm. We're, we, we are accomplishing what he, his highest aspiration for us. Mm. And, and we confess that when we confess our sins. Confession is, is also about confessing how good God is. Amen. Beautiful. Archbishop, is there anything else you'd like to add as we kind of conclude this discussion on reconciliation? No, you. I think uh, you've let me sort of offer a very important final point. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I suppose, well, maybe one more thing. Pray for the priest who hears your confession. Hmm. Well, we've reached the point in our podcast where we get to ask you, Archbishop Vigneron, questions that the faithful have submitted. If you're listening to the podcast and you'd like to submit a question, please feel free to email us at eyesonjesuspodcast at aod.org. You can go ahead and email us your name, your parish, and of course, your question. Again, that's to eyesonjesuspodcast at aod.org. Our first question comes from Gerardo at St. Mary's in Royal Oak. Gerardo asks... How do you see the faithful benefiting from our move towards families of parishes? What benefits do you see already, if any, and what future benefits are you anticipating? Well, uh, benefits for the faithful themselves, I think, uh, 
helping all of us be better connected to those in the neighboring parishes and being able to share experiences and to be able to share resources. And I think that is already happening. It's also uh, this shift is causing us to think about uh, mission. Uh, mm. If this uh, s uh, structural change really requires along with it uh, thought about uh, what's the structure for and how are we going to use it rightly. And mm. I think that is already happening and I think it will intensify as we, we move forward, as we get over the restructuring and become accustomed to it and learn uh, how better to use these new structures. Mm. I think that helps the lay faithful directly. I also think it, it particularly helps uh, their, their priests and their deacons and insofar as it, it makes the ministry of the pastors more effective, I think it is a blessing for the lay faithful. But I think what benefit ultimately? It benefits mission. I think this uh, move toward families of parishes is going to help us uh, be uh, more strongly on mission. I have a friend who works in the Diocese of London, and they moved to families of parishes several years ago. And she she met she emailed me, and she said, "You know, we're five years in, and the encouraging pieces, the people, the parishes that were part of the first wave, she said they are thriving right now." And it was a really hopeful word. I think that people are hmm. uh, parishes or dioceses that are further along in the process, saying like these the the first wave of parishes are now doing so well in terms and she actually used the word archbishop mission they're thriving in mission so that was real hopeful for me as we kind of go through some of the pains of what this means for the diocese right to see the the end goal because i think if we don't uh, take a new a new turn uh, i think uh, we will be uh even uh, we, we'll, we'll be focused on the dead end, mostly of maintenance. Mm -hmm. Archbishop, I have a question from Katie at Holy Name Parish in the Archdiocese of Denver. So uh, a listener from outside of our Archdiocese, and she asks, which disciple uh, to you, uh, I'm sorry, which disciple do you most identify with? Well, I, as I thought about this, I think about it, uh, I would offer two different one, uh, two different disciples for different reasons. One, I identify very much with St. John uh, uh, because I think in some ways of my own sense of the priestly heart of Jesus, I think John was very attentive to the heart of Jesus. And uh, also to St. Andrew uh, because of his role as an instrument in bringing others to Jesus, uh, certainly his brother Peter, but also uh, you have the... Uh, I think it's in St. John's Gospel where some Gentiles, some Greek speakers anyway, come to Andrew and say, uh, sir, we would see Jesus. And it's Andrew who brings them the, to Jesus, uh -huh. if I recall correctly. And our final question comes from Leah at St. Aloysius. I think it's a great question because I know you have moved uh, states before. And her question is, what advice do you have for a Californian who's recently moved to Detroit? And then she says, bonus question, will you pray for me? <laughs> well, the, uh, the second part is easy. Yes, I will do that. I'll include <laughs> yeah. her in my prayer. Awesome. Um, advice? Um, well, we're on our way out of winter, so, uh, but don't put your winter coat away yet. I guess that would be, uh, <laughs> awesome be one, advice. <laughs> one piece of advice. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. It's not specifically about California, but mm -hmm. uh, I would say to connect with uh, with people here so that she doesn't feel alone or if somehow uh, she's uh, m making the journey to the father's house uh, solo, that she has some accompaniment and to watch for the people that the Lord puts in her path. Uh, when I went to California, uh, this was a great blessing to me. God put some people in my path who really uh, accompanied me in my uh, my journey to move forward as the Bishop of Oakland. And by God's providence, there are, there are, there will be people who are her companions on the way. And uh, she should watch for them and, and take, uh, take hold of those blessings when, when she, uh, she sees them. I think that's awesome advice and good advice to anybody, whether they're moving from California to Michigan or any other move. Um, it's good advice. Hmm. True, true. Archbishop, is there anything else? I know we always like to conclude by asking you specifically, is there anything that we can keep in mind, uh, any of prayer intentions that you might have that we can keep in our own prayer? Off the top of my head, certainly uh, peace in Ukraine and for, as Mary said, the change of heart necessary for uh, peace to come, to be restored. Mm. Uh, given the time of the year and the liturgical year, we pray for the, uh, the elect, the catechumens, as well as the candidates for full, full communion. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. to keep on the road to move us out of uh, the pandemic. These are all, I think, important uh, intentions for our common prayer. You got it. We'll definitely keep those uh, your intentions in mind as we uh, as we pray this next month for sure. And Archbishop, I wouldn't mind if you would be mind uh, closing us with a prayer and a blessing. What I'd like to use is uh, since uh, this is March and we have Saint Joseph's feast day, this prayer written by Pope Francis to Saint Joseph. Hail, guardian of the Redeemer, spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary. To you, God entrusted his only son. In you, Mary placed her trust. With you, Christ became man. Blessed Joseph, to us too, show yourself a father and guide us in the path of life. Obtain for us grace, mercy, and courage and defend us from every evil. Amen. 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 Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus, a new episode available every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also like Detroit Stories, a podcast from the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find it on your favorite podcast app.